Shalom and thank you for listening to Progressively Jewish. The theme of our podcast today is giving. This theme emerges from the weekly Torah reading Ere'eh, an imperative version of the verb to see, from the book of Deuteronomy. And we will be talking today about the, what motivates people to do charity and volunteer and whether it is possible to reduce poverty in our country. I am delighted to introduce to you our guests. Dr. Sheila Marriott, recently retired Regional Director of the Royal College of Nursing. David Brown, doctor at the NHS Hospital NAE Department in Leeds. Dr. Mike Harris, retired Chief Executive of Brampton Hospital. In this week's Torah reading from the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 15, verse 7, we are told the following. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your settlements in the land that the eternal one your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart and shut your hand against such a needy person, but you shall give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the eternal one your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. So I wonder whether you might think that this principle of the Torah, the Old Testament, works in real life. That we are blessed when we give or share with others. I would like to ask first, Mike. Thank you, Tanya. Um, get rid of that noise on my computer. Basically, I think we are blessed when we give because I think it's the feeling that it gives you yourself. I mean, doing something for somebody else actually makes you feel better. And I think if I'm being brutally honest, I think that's the motivation for a lot of charitable activity. Um, it, it's that by doing it, by helping other people, it, it gives us something. And I, and I think that's just, it's an emotional connection. Um, uh, now you could argue, you could take that a step further and argue that uh, maybe it's people who have a, a hole in their own ego that need to do more charitably to fill that hole. But I don't think that's the reason. I, I think, so even though there's a biblical command that we should do it, I, um, and you could, I don't know, we, we had a discussion about empathy very recently, um, and it is to do with empathy, but actually I think much more than anything, in giving to other people, in doing things for other people, um, you make yourself feel better. You go away from it feeling, having a level of satisfaction and, and pleasure for yourself. So basically, Dr. Mike Harris is telling us that altruism per se does not exist. We do... Uh, we volunteer, we do good things for others because we also get something ourselves. David, do you agree with Mike? I really like uh, where Mike is coming from. I agree that the fact that giving and sharing with others is rewarding and is enjoyable um, is very much a blessing in itself. I think it's important to look at the fact that, well, that the fact that we're able to give and share with others is a blessing as well. The, the fact that we have, um, maybe we're blessed with skills or time or money that other people don't have, 
um, and that we have the opportunity to be able to share that and give that to other people is a blessing as well. Oh, that's lovely. And it's not just about people um, in need, right? But sharing whatever we've got. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thought. Sheila, do you agree with our guests today? Well, I was quite interested in the in the term and what in the question really about about being blessed, and I I felt a bit uncomfortable about that. I guess for me, um, I agree entirely with with Mike and David about the sense of, of well being and satisfaction um, around um, giving. And I think there's something really energizing as, um, uh, as well about giving and, uh, and sharing for me. But I, I suppose the things that I got involved with and volunteered for have been things that I've got a passion for. And so that, that makes, for me, the volunteering and, and the giving really, um, um, really special. Uh, but I, but I guess I don't quite know why. But I am struggling with the um, with the term um, blessed, and I guess that that may well be from my ag agnostic kind of background that I'm um, that I'm coming from. Probably, I love people, <laughs> and I love when people bless me. <laughs> <laughs> at a different, different time it's it's interesting that all three of you said how important how important volunteering is but maybe because the maybe because the, you're just very special people who do so much volunteering and give so much of your time to others uh, but I wonder whether Mike uh, agrees with what Sheila just said no I do agree but I think I think it's I was just going to take up with Sheila what the term blessed means actually I mean you can take it at a straight religious view and God will bless you and you know and, and bring things but actually if you take blessed in a much more generic term I think it's the very fact that it does something for us and gives us something back that is 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 what blessed means I don't think you need to actually put um a religious connotation to that. I think that can equally come from a humanistic point of view. Uh, and, I, and I guess from my um, my perspective, um, I, I very much think about the term blessed as as from uh, or with a, a religious um, connotation. Um, uh, I guess because for me there is something about. Um, giving which is not also about getting things back because often in situations that I've I've, I've been in I've not necessarily got anything back particularly um, uh, around um, what uh, you know the, the situations that, that I've been in but I've still come away feeling satisfied and and although it's you know I guess for me, there's something about um, my own well-being, um, and it it contributes to my own well-being to be able to give. So perhaps perhaps that is another way of thinking about blessed. Absolutely, and I think that's exactly the, the connotation of the word we are, we are using in that in that sense. And it's interesting that all three of you were talking about well-being and how much it gives you back, and not in any materialistic ways, but in sense of personal satisfaction to help others. But I wonder, while then, while biblical Judaism is urging us to give to the needy, rabbinic Judaism is making it compulsory to give. 
So tzedakah, charity, is one of the most important Jewish values, obligations in our tradition. So I want to ask you the next question. Why do you think the rabbis didn't trust people to give voluntarily? Well, I think that that's a very, I think it's very um, simplistic to say that maybe they didn't just trust, they didn't trust people and that's why it's compulsory. Um, I'm sure that there's a lot of reasons why um, giving um, and um, sharing in the form of sadaka in um, rabbinic Judaism is compulsory rather than um, kind of ad advised. Um, and I think maybe there, there are multiple reasons. One might be that the rabbis wanted to instill a culture of tzedakah um, donating to make it the done thing for everyone um, rather than just the, the, the thing that only right the individual righteous person would do. Or maybe they wanted to take away what we were talking about before, that feeling of when you you're choosing to do this thing for somebody else and you're doing it because you're going to get something out of it because you're going to feel good or because you're even worse you're going to just look good to other people um, and maybe they wanted to take that away and make it an even playing field um so there's some of my thoughts yeah that i think that's no that is is really interesting when i was thinking about this my, my background, I was brought up within the, uh, the Baptist church. My, um, uh, my parents were both deacons of our, of our, of our local church. And the, um, the teachings that I was brought up with was, was to tithe and that that tithe would be 10% um, of your um, income. And it was seen rather than giving the money to, to the church, you were giving the money in um, thanksgiving, really, of, of what God had um, had given you in uh, in terms of your of your earthly wealth. But I, I guess one of one of the issues for me is always um, was ten percent of um, uh, of what. So I guess ten percent. Of a, of a low income is not a lot of money. Ten percent of of um, a, a higher income um, is or appears to be quite, um, uh, quite a lot of money. So I think I think I, I seem to remember some people were struggling a little bit with um, uh, with that uh, within the church. But I, I guess at the end of the day, um, back to to the question, I suppose it, it shows a, a commitment to the faith uh, and to the to the community. I, I take a rather more cynical view. I mean, in, in terms of the actual question, I think uh, historically the rabbis recognize that people actually are innately selfish. Um, and they look at, not just at their own needs, but the needs of the immediate people around them. They, they look to provide for their family, um, their larger family, and would say, that's my priority. I, I haven't got enough to give 10% away or any percent away. Um, and I think we still see that now. I think that there's loads and loads of evidence that those people who are wealthiest do not give 10% of their income or even 1% in some cases, um, when they can afford to give probably 50% of their income. You know. I don't know how many hospitals could be funded from taking a, a vacation trip up in a 
uh, a vehicle that leaves Earth's orbit, uh, as Richard Branson and whatever the guy who runs Google has, has Amazon rather, has done recently. Um, and I think the rabbis recognize that, that while some people will readily give, maybe even the majority of people, there are people who actually struggle to do that for a variety of reasons. And I think by making it a, a law, I think they hope to actually push more people into doing it and, and, and to, and actually that 10% that you have for tithes in baptism is something that's actually accepted in Judaism and Islam. And it, it seems to become the figure that certainly the Abrahamic religions seem to think it, it, it is a reasonable one. And I, and I do think it's actually, you find very often people who are very hard up will give quite generously to charity. Um, and if they can't give money because they haven't got any, they'll, they'll give their time. They'll do something else that is charitable. Um, and, and so I think the rabbis were recognizing human nature and they were trying to say, this isn't just a request, it's an order. You've got to do it. That's nice, Mike, thank you. So maybe we should send the rabbis to the rich people to educate them in the laws of, of the Torah and all Abrahamic religions because 10% does come uh, from Torah originally. You know, today giving money is as important a part of one's charitable work as giving one's time. And I know that you all are volunteers champions in your own way. So I would like to, to ask you individual questions, starting with Sheila. Sheila, on top of a very demanding and responsible job as the East Midlands Director of the Royal College of Nursing, you became involved with the grassroots initiative of Nottingham Citizens about nine years ago and have been the co-chair of Nottingham Citizens for about five years. You are also a trustee of the Rainbows Children's Hospice. Why? Very <laughs> yeah, <very> good question. <laughs> um, is part of your baptism upbringing or a universal value you cultivated within yourself as an adult? Um, when I was thinking about this, um, this question, I guess it did take me back to, to my um, background as a, um, being brought up in a Christian home with, um, um, with, with the Christian values that that brought, um, which was, I guess, about living a, a good life. Um, and um, and I guess the reward for that would would be uh, then um, being able to um, have eternal life. Um, I I moved I guess from home into becoming a nurse, children's nurse um, uh, actually, um, and I remember getting kind of quite active just as a um, uh, as a staff nurse and as a, as a ward sister around um, children and children's rights to um, to consent and listening to children and, and and I guess that theme went on to to when I became more senior uh, within the NHS and really thinking about how we looked after families and listened to families and established a, uh, I worked at Birmingham Children's Centre and we uh, we established um, a library for for families um, to, to to try and um, understand more about their children's conditions etc um, etc 
And eventually through my career, I ended up working for a trade union, which was really, really not what I expected to be doing at all. The Royal College of Nursing is a is a trade union, but we you know within the traditions of trade unionism, uh, um, I mean, they were uh, set up to support the, the workers of, um, of miners, um, of um, uh, weavers, domestic workers, etc, uh, etc. Et so for me, um, the Royal College of Nursing, I felt should be um, able to support the local community and not not just nurses, which is why I got involved in um, uh, in, in Nottingham citizens. This was not the view of um, quite a few of my um, my colleagues. So I guess to to answer the the question for me, there's really a combination really of, of those church principles, um, and as I've gone along. I guess developed a real sort of sense of uh, of justice for whatever the work that uh, that I'm I'm doing. I'm, I'm wanting to to be proactive around things that I wasn't happy with or felt that we could do better or should do better with. Definitely, as long as I know you, you do care, and it's one of the most fundamental values within yourself: the sense of justice and care for other people. And now I'd like to ask David, our youngest guest on the podcast today. David, you are now a qualified doctor working for the NHS in Leeds. But while you were a medical student in Nottingham, you became very involved with the Liberal Synagogue and its religion school in particular, virtually from the very beginning of your student time in Nottingham. You also volunteered while being a student for an emergency NHS team and once saving the life of a stranger who'd had a heart attack on the street. Do you think volunteering is part of your Jewish identity or your own personality? Thanks, Tanya. That's a really good question. I think I'd like to start by saying that I don't think my Jewish identity and my own personality are mutually exclusive. I would say that very much, well, my Jewish identity is very much part of my own personality. And I guess the Jewish community in which I grew up in um, is very much responsible for how I am as a person today. Um, and growing up, um, I think the Jewish community um, was the first place um, where I was first able to experience volunteering and where I first had role models who were volunteers um, in the older kids in the Jewish community who would teach me at Haida Religion School um, and who would lead me on camp. And really, they probably inspired me to want to get involved in teaching in, in, in Haida and to leading on camp and doing other things like um, mitzvah day um, and taking every Jewish um, opportunity I had. Um, and I think that those experiences have you know, probably instilled in me that kind of motivation to take opportunities whenever I see them um, to kind of learn and experience different things and to meet new people and to do the things that I enjoy. And I think that, you know, through volunteering, I've been able to do a lot of that stuff. Um, and I'm very lucky now as a healthcare professional that, you know, that the amount of different volunteering opportunities there are for me um, is endless. And that, um, 
that story that you mentioned was when I was um, volunteering as a community first responder, which was something I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate to be able to have done. Um, so I think that's that's my answer to that question. <laughs> NHS is so lucky to have you as the doctor, but also I can imagine how your family and your teachers are proud of you now today listening to this podcast. And I've really, really enjoyed working with you. Again, the same like with Sheila, what I found fascinating, you know, the sense of care and justice and responsibility and, and desire to help others. It's very ins inspiring. And I would like now to ask Mike, who have had a very demanding career in mental health and been among other roles, the chief executive of Rampton Hospital for 13 years. And despite of being so busy with work and family, you have been a very active member of Nottingham Liberal Synagogue since 1979, being chair twice and president and active service leader and a member of Rights and Practices Committee. And since the pandemic, you are in charge with all the IT equipment in the synagogue, or as we lovingly call you, Mr. Zoom. You also chair two local and one national charities, as you do on top of everything else. And why do you make your life so difficult for yourself? I would like to ask you. I would argue with the final point of your premise, actually. I don't think it does make my life difficult. I think it, it fulfills my life. I mean, I, I think I'm gonna also try and answer the same question you asked David. Do, do I think it's to do with my personality or my Jewish um, heritage, my Jewish upbringing? And, and like David, I think the two are intimately interlinked and I couldn't possibly tell you which is which. Um, and I could find, although I can find lots of things in, in biblical Judaism that would say that you should do all these good things, I can also find some terrible things in biblical Judaism which, with which I would absolutely fundamentally run away from in horror so I don't know it, it and it's it's to do with family it's to do with a whole range of different things I I've had a very privileged life in in many ways it's not it's not been without very significant difficulties at times um, getting to medical school was e extremely difficult I mean I think I had 27 applications before I got in and did a first degree so and it's all I ever wanted to do from the age of seven. I, I had one one aim in mind. So that that was that was difficult. But I got in. I got a place. I was privileged to get a place. I, I I've had a you know I've worked extremely hard during my career. But I've been very privileged. I've been well paid. And I, I'm going to repeat something. One of my when I was medical director of um, a hospital in Northampton, my my nursing director colleague and Sheila will be perhaps aware of the tensions between medical directors and nursing directors which are often quite marked and my colleague um, said and it, he and he meant this he, he said nurses are privileged that patients allow them to wipe their backsides and he meant it because he said the very fact that people trust you with the most intimate acts on their body is a huge act of trust and for me doing psychiatry, the fact that people reveal their innermost, darkest secrets, and they do, um, 
is a privilege. And so I think in many ways, I, I've had a very privileged, privileged life. So actually giving back to people, whether it's doing clinical work, which I continue to do, um, or charitable work, um, I, I think they're, they're all interlinked. And I think it's something about, about giving back to, to other people, some of the privileges I, I've been fortunate to enjoy. And actually being a doctor is, is a huge privilege. I mean, because not only are we able to do a job that most of us enjoy, we're actually fairly well paid for doing it as well. And that's, you know, that's lucky. I like, I love listening to people and I get paid for it. So, you know, what, you know, what could be better? Well, you know, Mike, I think a junior doctor on our podcast might disagree with you, but but paying, but hopefully you'll get you'll, the junior doctors will get there as well uh, after some negotiations. Tanya, that's what I'm saying. It's it's a hard course. My my not my first job. My uh, I mean, I was on the first two junior hospital strikes because we used we actually when I did my first house job what they you know the residence program the, the foundation year they call it now we were actually working 108 hours a week and the first thing was to actually get the European working time directive where people weren't allowed to work those hours because it was physically and emotionally exhausting and every time I had a day off I was ill and I, and I literally mean that I'd, I'd spike it and didn't have it when I was working but as soon as I had a day off I'd spike a temperature because it's your immune system catching up or whatever. Um, so yeah, being a junior doctor has always been difficult. And I think it's probably more difficult currently because of the tech, even though the hours aren't as long, the technology, the pressure, the demands are, are greater. The, and the scrutiny, you know, the, your, your ability to make mistakes is even more scrutinized than it was when I was a junior doctor. It's great to hear that, Mike. Thank you. It's quite fascinating. I only now realize that the, the three of you are all the NHS professionals in, yeah. in one way or another. And obviously, we're all in, in so much debt to the NHS doctors and professionals and nurses. And it's, it's really good to illustrate, you know, and, and highlight that is on, on the podcast as well. And there is something about, you know, working really, really hard. And it's great when you're paid well for your work, if that's how it should be. But I just find it amazing that despite of all three of you being so busy you also seem to like volunteering as a full-time job as well i know mike that you celebrate today the 47th um, wedding anniversary uh with your lovely wife pat and i wish you a long life together and many happy thank returns. you and it's amazing that on your wedding anniversary you're coming on the progressively jewish podcast thank you very much but i think Pat is an angel so clearly you share the same value of of giving and been there for others, which is wonderful. So can I ask you quickly then a question? Because obviously you've you know, been, you all three of you, doing so much for others and helping. And particularly, Mike, I hope, David, you're going to be not obviously next uh, Dr. Mike Harris, because I was worried that, you know, we need, we need, we need um, a new generation of, of people of that caliber. Uh, but doing all that work which you've done and many other people are doing we still seem to be you know struggling to get out of out of the difficult financial situation which many people find themselves in for various reasons but the question which i want to ask you is that we have 166,000 charities in the uk and including many charities working with the poor vulnerable and needy 
So the question is, why is it that we can't eradicate poverty in our country? The, the, the straight answer to that is we can. Of course we can. We could, if, if, if there was motivation to do it, this comes down to motivation, we have homeless people. We have a serious problem with homelessness in this country. We have, always, well, we haven't always had. Actually, we have had since Mrs. Thatcher first came to power and the number of homeless people rocketed up. We know that at the beginning of the pandemic, because they thought there would be a, a pool of people carrying the virus, they almost instantly cured homelessness overnight. Um, they paid for hotels, they put people into residential accommodation, they provided medical teams to look after them. And, and literally almost overnight, they eradicated homelessness. And of course, they've now reversed that and more people are going back on the streets. And the same is true of people in poverty. Of course, we could get away, we could get rid of it. If the greedy rich people were prepared to give up more of their money, taxation is, is something, it, it, if you like, it's like tzedakah. I mean, it, it is a form of giving to, for everybody's good. And it's, it's like wearing a mask, if you like, in public. You wear a mask for the good of others, not for your own sake. We pay taxes because it actually helps other people. And if we were all prepared to pay fair taxes, particularly like people like me who, who earn a good, you know, have a very good financial situation, then we could easily do away with poverty and we have the means when we are said to be the fifth richest country in the world why have we got more and more people using food banks i mean it, it it's wrong and it's crazy and it's immoral and it doesn't need to be happening so that's that's my answer that's such a good point it's interesting i was talking to a friend who's running one of the local big charities and one of their biggest fundraising campaigns every year was happening around the winter shelter. And this year they didn't do that. And when I asked why, that's exactly, that's exactly what he said, that now people going to hotels and having their own accommodation, they value it so much more that very few people are on the streets today. And it made such a huge difference in terms of eradicating homelessness. That proves your point, Mike. Sheila, have you got yeah, I mean, my views are, are, are very, very much along the uh, the lines of uh, of Mike's, and of course, being um, brought up in Nottingham, where the legend of Robin Hood is to uh, rob the rich and uh, and give to the poor. Yeah, I, you know, I I think this issue of, of taxation is a really, really um, significant one, and we don't seem to be able to provide an adequate social care and an education system that addresses the inequalities that are um, are out there. Uh, I visited Scandinavian countries a, a few times, um, uh, not very recently, but they just seem to have the, that balance of, uh, of, of taxation. And although the cost of living was much more expensive, on the one hand, on the other, the quality of life was, um, uh, was better because the wages were higher. Uh, and the, um, the, the social care net, network and net was very, very strong. And I'm not saying that, that, um, that, that they've got the, um, the system com uh, completely 
um, sorted, but they did seem to have a much um, lower level of, um, of poverty than, than we have here. And I, I think it's, it, it's very much a, a political act. And I, I don't think it's around, necessarily around which party is in place because different parties come, come into power and we still have the, the same problem. And I guess because we've been talking about pay and pay in the NHS, I could possibly not use this opportunity to say nurses are really struggling at the moment. We are really struggling uh, to retain nurses because, particularly at a lower grade, because I don't think that we uh, we value them for the for the work that they do. And if they can uh, get a better pay working in a supermarket than working in the NHS. Uh, working the shifts and um, with the kind of pressures and, and stress that they're under at the moment. I, I fear for the NHS, I fear for uh, for public services, unless we can get that, that pay dimension um, uh, sorted out. I'll get off my soapbox now, Tanya. Um, I think they were really good points, Mike and Sheila. Um, um, I think my personal experience of poverty, and fortunately, um, is through work um, and not through my own, my own um, personal experiences, working in A&E in a very uh, deprived area of Yorkshire. And the kind of a lot of patients that I see um, have health problems and social problems that are a result of, you know, decades of poverty within their for themselves and their family. And, you know, I think Sheila's right in you know, the touching on when she touched on the education point and the social care point money needs to go into these things um and you know as easy as it potentially was to provide shelter for everyone that was homeless um in the pandemic i think it's a much longer um there needs a much needs a much longer term solution um, than just throwing money at a short um solution like that you know we need to start from the bottom and to stop the cycle in the first place um and i think that like maimonides said in his in his ladder of sadaka that the, the most important the best way to give to someone is to provide them with the ability to sustain themselves and that's something that obviously needs to start from the bottom and it takes a much longer time than just throwing money money at things um and so that I, I agree with what, what she just said with their health, with the education and the social care. What, 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 a, great, what a great quote from Maimonides, absolutely, David. And um, it's interesting how from you know, ethical and moral values, uh, particularly of, of your own personal experience, we moved very, very smoothly in, into social, social justice, justice area because they're really so interchangeable, right? When we talk about volunteering, maybe Scandinavian model is the answer. Maybe we just should send all the potential governments there on some practical experiences, organizing them some um, um, practical, practical, you know, um, what, what, what do you call, what is the right word? Practice, practicing and then come, coming back with some, some better solutions. So the good, the good news that it's possible to eradicate poverty and maybe we need to put the doctors and the rabbis in charge. But the last question for our podcast today, which I would like to ask each of you very quickly, because we've got to finish a very interesting and stimulating conversation. 
what would you say to a person who considers volunteering for the first time in their life if they've been inspired by this um, interaction and conversation between you? I would definitely say only volunteer for something that you are really interested in. Um, something that you feel passionate about and something that energizes you. You know, sometimes um, people also volunteer because it gives them a social network and there's nothing um, wrong with that. But I think if you're volunteering for the first time, yeah, definitely something that you, you're really interested in um, and really want to make a difference for. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Sheila. I think definitely I would wholeheartedly say to someone, if you're thinking about volunteering, definitely do it. You know, if you're looking for exposure to something that you're interested in and something that you think you might enjoy, then there's no better opportunity than to just put yourself out there and volunteer. And the taking one opportunity will lead to more opportunities and it will lead to meeting like-minded people and learning new things that you never thought you would learn um so i would definitely say go for it because really you don't have anything to lose um with volunteering i i agree absolutely with sheila and david um i would just add that yes do something that you're interested in but you'll also get to meet a great bunch of other people you'll have a good time and it'll make you feel really good about yourself on that positive note, Sheila, Mike and David, I would like to thank you very much for coming on Progressively Jewish. It was a privilege to have you as our guests. Thank you very much again. Pleasure. Thank, thank you very much, Tanya. Thank you. Thanks, Tanya. This podcast was presented by me, Rabbi Tanya Sachnovich, and I would like to thank our guests, Dr. Mike Harris, Dr. David Brown and Dr. Sheila Marriott again. And thank you to Liberal Judaism, Reform Judaism and Leoberg College for supporting Progressively Jewish. Please share your thoughts with us on the Progressively Jewish Facebook page or by emailing us at progressivelyjewish at gmail.com. Next week, we will explore the theme of justice.